You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to be saved. Would you join me for a word of prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. May in this time I clearly give the sense of the passage so that all of us may be brought up well in faith, that we may be built up, that our faith may become more complete, more mature, and we might be strengthened to serve you. We ask this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, as we enter the book of Nehemiah at this point in the 8th chapter. This is kind of, the action is reaching its apex. The Babylonian captivity is at an end, and the people have been restored by edicts to their homeland. And not only are they rebuilding Jerusalem, but they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem that will serve as the spiritual heart of the nation pumping the vital lifeblood of God's Word into the people, equipping the body politic for not just life in this world, but faithfulness unto the next. Now, we were all excited a couple of um, months ago or years ago, I mean, not years yet, not plural, but, but certainly a year ago or better, when after a couple of months of hiatus, we could all finally gather together again for worship when our exile was over. Imagine how they felt. Gathering for worship in the beginnings of the restoration, the walls are up, but not the whole thing yet, of God's house after more than six decades of being scattered to the four winds. They gather for worship And the prophet stands up and reads from the Law of Moses, what we call books Genesis through Deuteronomy of the Old Testament. Now, if you think our worship services are long, are you glad that our worship service, like the readings alone, don't last just from like breakfast to noon? (laughs) And the people hear the word and they respond. They put their hands in the air, they fall on their face, they weep. They're receiving the riches of God's Word for the first time. And God is using His Word to bring revival amongst His people. Now, revival is not a word that has a lot of cultural cachet amongst Lutherans. Historically, I think Lutherans, when we hear the word revival, we think of shiny-haired preachers with shiny suits and, you know, weeping masses in tent revivals and stuff like this. And it sort of feels all just a, a little too unsophisticated. But revival is a biblical concept. And we see it at work in our readings today. 
especially in our first reading. We don't need to be afraid of revival. Kind of reminds me of a joke that I, I heard at a pastor's conference one time. Uh, there was a professor from Oxford who'd gotten was asked to come over and give some lectures over here, some theological lectures. And you know, one of his fellow professors came to his office and said, "Oh, congratulations! I hear you're going to the colonies to give some to give to give the word of God. Tell me, tell me, where are you going?" He told him all about the things, and he says, "Well, well, I'm going to the south." He says, "Oh, to the south? You may meet some Southern Baptists down there." And the professor says, Southern Baptists? What are they? And his friend pauses and he says, Well, they're like Christians, only louder. <laughs> I think sometimes Lutherans can feel that way about revival, but, but revival is really authentic revival. is something that has happened over and over and over again in the history of God's people. But genuine revival is not all about emotions. Whether it's the, attempt to, the false attempts to renew the church on both the left and the right wings of the church always play upon people's emotions. Emotions will accompany genuine revival, but genuine revival is easy to recognize whether it brings about a person quaking, in quiet before the Lord, or whether it involves people rolling in the aisles and shouting. Because there are a few things that always accompany genuine revival, and we see them in our reading from Nehemiah today. The word revival simply means to bring back to life the people of God who are dead in their sins, who have wandered or even run away from God. And the first thing that you'll always see in genuine revival at the dead center is God's Word. You will always see God's Word being proclaimed. And as our reading from Nehemiah said today, the plain meaning, the sense of the Word being exposited by the preacher so that everyone can come to a solid and right understanding of it. The Word of God is God's chosen means. Sometimes it's through a prophet who's been given a direct word, but like Jeremiah or Isaiah, but usually it's through the Scriptures, which are the written Word of God, the testimony scribed by the Spirit for our benefit. And when God's Word is read, there is praise of God that erupts. God is worshipped when perhaps God's worship has been neglected or has fallen into a sort of flattened, we just go through the motions. Then what you're going to see is the work of the Holy Spirit being evident. This may include more spectacular manifestations, but the one work of the Holy Spirit that is always present in genuine revival is that the Holy Spirit brings humility to the people. That humility leads them to acknowledge the truth of their position vis-a-vis -vis God, and it leads them to deal kindly with the people around them who are struggling with sin also. A healthy church is always, always a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So if revival is going on there, 
The Holy Spirit is bringing the humility necessary to make that possible. And of course, that humility before God brings about the confession of sins. Rather than trying to justify themselves, the people confess what the ways they've been out of step with God's will and throw themselves upon God's mercy. And this is why we see the weeping in our passage from Nehemiah. The people are just, just wrought with grief, not just over what they've done wrong, but the way in which they've disappointed their God, who has done so much for them. Remember, the stories they're hearing as they hear the Law of Moses are everything from the creation story to the calling of Abraham to the leading of the people out of slavery through the plagues and the Red Sea in Egypt. They hear all that God has done for them and they have fallen away. Not only have they been in Babylon where they certainly couldn't do temple worship and engage in the sacrifices there, but they've, they've taken on the habits of the surrounding culture its thought patterns and its behavior patterns. And they haven't been living like a people called out by God. God's revealed will to live differently. They've disappointed their Father in heaven. And if, if your house is anything like our house, if your family is anything like our family, mom and dad lecture you, that, could, that can roll off your back like water. But if mom and dad say, I'm so disappointed in you, oh, that hurts right down to the core. The people weep for the way they've disappointed God. And this results in prayer. Genuine revival is not about the hype. It's not about the glory. It's not about the big worship services with their production. It's... It's issues forth in genuine prayer among the people. It'll start in worship, but it's going to be in people's homes. It's going to be in the hallways. It's going to be on the street corners as people gather around each other and are renewed in that relationship with God that is prayer because God desires our communion with Him. And finally, it results in renewed commitment to be obedient to the Word of God. This is never perfectly executed, but the sincere desire of those who are experiencing revival, literally being brought back to life by the Holy Spirit, will be to follow God more earnestly and a desire matched with a will to try. These are the marks of authentic revival that we see demonstrated for us in the book of Nehemiah today. And they're the marks of genuine revival whenever it's happened in the church's history, whether it be with St. Simeon the New Theologian in the Eastern Mediterranean, whether it be 15th century France under Francis de Sales, or 15th, sorry, 16th century France under Francis de Sales, or 16th century Germany under Martin Luther. Whether it be Azusa Street, here in San, in San Francisco in the United States or in lots of little small enclaves throughout Christian history where God has lit a fire and brought the people back to life like is happening today in Ethiopia. 
These things will always be present. And although they'll take many different cultural forms, although sometimes there will be rolling in the aisles, sometimes they'll be jumping up and down, and sometimes there will be people quietly gathering for prayer and chanting. Genuine revival always has these marks. And it does issue forth an emotion. It's not about the emotion, but the emotion comes... Now, and we see another emotion entirely in our gospel reading. See, in the first reading from Nehemiah, God's word hurts the people. It makes them feel bad about what they've done or what they've been doing and how they've been living and how they've been thinking. Jesus' words do the same in the gospel. But the reaction of the people is completely different. Theirs is a reaction of unfaith. Now, unfaith is not a word in English, but it's a word in Greek. It's a word in the New Testament. Too often in your English translations of the Bible, it'll be translated as doubt. That's a really bad translation because it's not what the word means. Doubt is an honest question seeking an honest answer. And I fully believe that the Holy Scriptures give those answers or good, solid biblical theology founded upon it. Those answers can be found there. If I didn't believe Christianity could answer legitimate questions, I wouldn't be a Christian. But unfaith is different. In Greek, it's quite literally the opposite of faith. Instead of receiving with gratitude what God is giving, it's the rejection of what God is giving deliberately and persistently. It's an attitude of defiance and rebellion against God. Now the people are very excited about Jesus when he reads the prophet Isaiah and, now, and says, this is now fulfilled in your hearing because they feel special. They feel like, look, God's fulfilling his word right in our presence. Aren't we special? And then Jesus, when they start asking questions about, who, about his parentage, starts telling stories from the scriptures about how God passed over the chosen people to serve others. Outside, the Gentiles, those outside what they thought were the elect. And the people are filled with wrath. Because what Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms is that this word that was just fulfilled in your hearing is not for you. At least not the way you stand right now defiant and self-righteous and thinking you're better than all the people around you. Sounds an awful lot like when John the Baptist said, do not presume to say you have Abraham for your father. That's not good enough. The sacrifice the Lord desires is a broken and contrite heart. That's what brings revival. That's what brings a renewed relationship with God. And rejecting that message, they cast him out of the town and try to cast him off a cliff. I wish the scriptures were more clear about how he got away, perfectly honest. Unfaith is a rejection of the salvation God is offering because salvation is by grace through faith. It's a horrible, horrible thing spiritually. Because it's saying, I'd rather take the judgment of God. 
than to accept what God is giving to me in His goodness. Because the Word of God to us, even when it makes us feel bad about ourselves temporarily, is a good gift. Contrast the two different experiences of these people. One group hears a message they don't want to hear and they try to cast Jesus out of their midst and kill Him. Attempted murder is the end result. Another group hears a word that's hard on them and brings them to grief. And what they hear when they cast themselves down in weeping and repentance is the Lord saying through His priests, Stand up! Be restored. Be joyful. The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a day made holy to God, not just because he, you're reading His Word, but because you're responding in faith. The person who receives the Lord's Word in faith and it issues forth in a turning away from everything that is not God and back towards God, which is what we... That's just the description of repentance. That... That person is restored and set on his feet. The person who rejects the message as not being good for them, not affirming them, not making them feel special, and refuses to reform their life, to repent, attempts to kill the messenger. These are the different trajectories of faith and unfaith. One ends in repentance and life. One ends in recalcitrance and death. Repentance is the lifeblood of the church. And nothing shows us this more clearly than the lives of Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul are not only apostles, they're both authors of Holy Scripture. In the book of Acts, we see Peter being given an amazing direct message from God. He has a vision that, he, that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are to be included in now in the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. And although he's surprised by this message initially, he becomes an advocate for the full inclusion of non-Jews in the church. In Acts chapter 15, you can read about it when you go home. Paul... Paul is persecuting the church, actively rounding up church members and casting them in jail, or even better, hey, let me hold your coat for you so you can stone that guy more effectively. Get a good swing on that rock. And God knocks him quite literally off his donkey and strikes him blind and calls him to repentance. And he does repent. And he ends up becoming, as he says in two of his epistles, the apostle to the Gentiles then. Paul's repentance turns him into an apostle. What's not recounted for us in the Bible is what happened between these two great leaders of the church. It is alluded to, though, by... It is alluded to in the book of Galatians by, by Paul. What we know is that despite the fact that he got a direct word from God, despite the fact that God gave him a vision and made him an advocate for the Gentiles, the full inclusion of non-Jews in the church's life, Peter later bowed to pressure within the church to not sit down at table with those Gentiles, to keep the Jewish laws and keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate from one another. And St. Paul 
in front of the whole church got in his face. Called him out in front of the whole assembly for his hypocrisy and his failure to live up to the commission the Lord had given him. Called him out because he was wrong. He reminded him of God's word to him. And this must have meant a tremendous loss of face for the chief of the apostles. Can you imagine? He could have easily looked at Paul and said, Who are you to tell me you're the latecomer to this party? But he didn't. Instead, instead, we know from church history that Peter repented. That he sat down at table again with his non-Jewish brothers and sisters. That he turned away from what seemed to be wise in the eyes of the way, way of the world and turned back to God. We are in the midst of the week of prayer for Christian unity. It used to be a bigger deal when more people went to church. But it always stretches from January 18th to January 23rd, 25th, excuse me, from the confession of Peter that Jesus is God's Messiah, His Lord, to the conversion of St. Paul. Those are the bookends of the week of prayer for Christian unity because the unity of the church is built on our mutual repentance on our mutual bowing to the authority of God's Word, which is how God brings revival to His people. And that's why if you ever see an icon of Peter and Paul together, it either looks like this, where they're embracing and offering each other the kiss of peace. If you ever see, whenever you see icons, you can always know Peter's the old guy and Paul's the bald guy. They're either pictured like this, embracing because God's Word has put their relationship back in order, or like this, holding the church between them. Because the church of Jesus Christ is built on the mutual repentance of all its members. Our bowing to the authority of God's Word, by the power of His Word, the Holy Spirit bringing humility of heart to us, so we can love and serve one another in a renewed and restored faithfulness. Our humility begets our repentance and it begets the forgiveness whereby we are restored to one another. The Word of God can be hard on us, but not as hard as our sin, which leaves us forever isolated and apart. Our faith brings us back together, both in repentance and in the joy of the Lord that is our strength. As it was for the people in Nehemiah's time, so may it be for us. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your eternal word of which the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author though you worked through human hands. 
Thank you for giving to us a gift that sets our life back in order when we are enslaved to sin. Help us, Lord, to receive with joy both the correction and the encouragement of Scripture. Help us to receive it with an open arms and an open heart when it comforts us in our affliction and when it afflicts us in our comfort. And by the repentance that you engender there, help us to receive one another in love when we have wronged one another. And help us, Lord, restored to more faithfully be your people. Bring revival in our midst. This we pray through the Holy Spirit, for he lives and reigns with you, Father and Son, one God now and forever. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light.